Good evening, everyone. I think I can speak for all the teachers, and I'm personally touched by the earnestness of your practice, the courage that you're showing up and working with some very difficult challenges and the, the wholehearted diligence. This hall is very quiet. It's become a, a sacred space and you've created that. And it's honored to be in your presence and hearing the work that you're, that you're taking on. So as, as you look around you in this world, it feels like there's unending war. It feels like there's an unending exploitation of the weak by the strong and the rich. And you see the continued and accelerating degradation of, of your environment. It's not surprising that at times there's feelings of despair, hopelessness, and confusion that all of us feel. But what of the still great beauty of this planet that we were born onto? Those of us who live in areas where there are four seasons, we're in this miraculous change. It's just absolutely splendid outside on this earth. Our mountains, our forests, the oceans, there's so much beauty here. And what about the tender acts of compassion, the selfless love, the acts of heroic sacrifice that are occurring every moment across this, wor across this world? What about that part of life? And what about those powerful forces that generate those actions? Those forces that fuel and support the heart to open further and further. The divine impulse, as Rinpoche called it the other night. A little story. Um, I saw the picture of the young man who, who, whose these words I will read. He looks like he's late 20s, maybe early 30. As old as I am, I can't tell age so well anymore. I mean, everybody looks like, you know, a child. <laughs> uh, his name is Julio Diaz. Uh, I think he lives in New York. So these are his words. So I get off the train, you know, and I'm, I'm walking toward the stairs and this young teenager uh, pulls out a knife. He wants my money. So I just give him my wallet and, and I told him, here you go. He starts to leave and as he's walking away, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, you forgot something. If you're gonna be robbing people for the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. So, you know, he's looking at me like, what, what's going on here, you know? And he asked me, why are you doing this? And I'm like, well, I don't know, man. If you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. I mean, all I wanted to do was to get dinner. And uh, if you really want to join me, hey, you're more than welcome. So I'm like, look, 
You can follow me if you want. You know, I just felt maybe he really needs help. So, so, you know, we go into the diner where I normally eat and we sit down in the booth and the manager comes by, the dishwashers come by, the waiters come by. They all come by to say hi. You know, so the kid was like, man, you know, everybody here, do you own this place? And I'm like, no, I just eat here a lot. And he's like, but you're even nice to the dishwasher. And I'm like, well, haven't you been taught you should be nice to everybody? So he's like, well, yeah, but I didn't think people actually behave that way. <laughs> so, so I just asked him in the end, I'm like, what is it that you want out of life? And, and he had almost a sad face. Either he couldn't answer me or he didn't want to. So the bill came and I look at him and I'm like, look, uh, I guess you're going to have to pay for this bill. <laughs> because you've got my money, and, and I can't pay for this, so, so if you give me my wallet back, I'll gladly treat you. He didn't even think about it. He's like, yeah, okay, here you go. So I got my wallet back, and I gave, you know, I gave him $20 for it. You know, I figure uh, maybe it'll help him. I don't know. And when I give him the $20, I asked him to give me something in return, which was his knife. And he gave it to me. You know, it, it, it's funny because when I told my mom about what happened later, and no mom wants to hear this kind of story, <laughs> at first she was like, well, you know, you're the kind of kid if someone asked you for the time, you gave them your watch. You know? I don't know. I figured, you know, you treat people right, you can only hope that they treat you right. It's as simple as it gets in this complicated world. So tonight I want to talk a little about these forces that naturally run through people like Julio Diaz. Abraham Lincoln described them in his second inaugural address as the better angels of our nature. The beautiful emotions. In classic Buddhism, they're known as the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, the immeasurables. And the forces are love, compassion, joy, especially the joy and happiness uh, of others, taking joy in the happiness of others, and equanimity. And it's not hyperbole when I say that the potential and the hope for this planet rides on the cultivation of and the enhancement of these forces. And we've all heard the Dalai Lama repeatedly declare, kindness is my religion. And at first take, well, this sounds kind of cute or trite even. But if, if you really reflect on it, He's talking about taking refuge in very powerful forces. Or consider, consider these words of the Buddha. Like a caring mother holding and guarding the life of her only child, so with boundless heart of loving kindness, hold yourself and all beings as your beloved children. Hold yourself and all beings 
as your beloved children. There's tremendous beauty and power in those words. So let's just do it. We'll start kind of start with a very simple, short reflection. So you might close your eyes. And just consider someone you love. If you have children, it could be children. If you have a partner you love, it could be a partner, a pet, a friend. Just choose somebody that you love. And feel in to that care, love, friendliness, warmth you feel for that person, that being. Feel that love that you direct to that person. I mean, wow, what you wouldn't do for them. Anything. And now imagine for just a moment if the power of the love you feel toward your loved one was widened to include all beings in a totally non-discriminatory way. Everything in the biosphere, everything that walks, crawls, swims, flies, and is rooted in the ground. How powerful that would be. And open your eyes. It's just the possibility. My children are grown now. They're out of the nest. But the strength of those feelings that I have for them doesn't diminish. And over the last 15 months, I, 15 months I, I've kind of fallen into this wonderful situation. I have housemates. And when they moved in the previous summer, there were two of them. Of course, one of them was pregnant. And she had this baby who's now a year old. So... I live in this field of love for this child. And her parents, Amy and Steve, are the most loving, patient, caring parents uh, that they could be, really. So it's, it's like the field that's created is literally as the Buddha uh, described it, like the love of a caring mother and father, in this case, holding and guarding the life of their only child. So watching my own heart in response to little Mary Louise, it's an everyday reminder to me of what's actually possible, the capacity of love in this heart, the vast human heart. And additionally, I don't have to change any of the diapers or stay up at night with her. It's just great, you know. <laughs> so as humans, we have so much potential. And there's many conflicting energies. And they're the shadow elements. You know, some people have referred to us as the thinking apes, you know. And just what is our nature? It's not so easily pinned down. 
I mean, the conversation continues. There still remains strong support for Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher who in 1651 in his work, The Leviathan, he said, Christian kindness is a psychological absurdity. Men are selfish beasts who care for nothing but their own well-being. Human existence is a war of all against all. And sure, if we, if we want to, we can find examples and build that argument just by reading the news. And the other hand of the argument also has a long historical precedent. The Roman philosopher Marcus Aurelius, uh, he called kindness humanity's greatest delight. Kindness as humanity's greatest delight. And the early Christians had this uh, had a word for loving kindness, and they they describe loving kindness the same way that we do. It was caritas is the word for loving kindness in Christianity. And today there's numerous researchers looking into this, looking into this. What's the nature of this thinking ape? Steven Pinker um, of Harvard, he makes a case that there actually has been a decline of violence in the world. I mean, that's hard to imagine. But he cites various statistics and points this out that actually there's less violence per capita across the globe and that there is a lessening percentage of deaths by violence over time. He makes this, I mean, it's a cogent and somewhat optimistic argument. Many years ago, I, I taught statistics in college. And they don't necessarily tell untruths, but they often don't tell the whole story. And Pinker himself sees the nuance in his argument. He says this, why has violence declined so dramatically for so long? Is it because violence has literally been bred out of us, leaving us more peaceful by nature? That seems unlikely. Evolution has a speed limit measured in generations, and many of these declines have unfolded over decades or even years. Toddlers continue to kick, bite, and hit. Not Mary Louise, she doesn't do any of that. <laughs> Little boys continue to play fight. People of all ages continue to snipe and bicker, and most of them continue to harbor violent fantasies and enjoy violent entertainment. I mean, certainly entertainment is just like this kind of stimulation of explosions in most of the movies that are put out. So Pinker, in this, he, he really bows to innate kindness. Um... Oh, he goes on, I'm sorry. It's more likely that human nature has always comprised inclinations toward violence and inclinations that counter counteract them, such as self-control, empathy, fairness, and reason. And he points to Abraham Lincoln, what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Violence has declined because historical circumstances have increasingly favored our better angels. So he does, he bows to the innate kindness that we have in the body of his argument. But he also rests the body of his argument on the conditions, the historic conditions. Another current researcher, uh, Datcher Keltner of Berkeley, 
points out that thinking about, observing, or practicing kindness stimulates the vagus nerve, which literally warms up the heart and is very closely related to the brain's receptor networks for oxytocin, that, that soothing hormone that's involved in uh, maternal uh, bonding. And kindness also triggers the, the brain's emotional regulation center that, that, um, that creates dopamine, which is associated with positive emotions and what many of us who exercise call a natural high. In his, in his book, Keltner's book, uh, Born to be Good, he argues that human beings have survived as a species and gained a certain amount of dominion over this planet because uh, we mostly learned how to control our most destructive impulses. And we've been rewarded for protecting one another, for cooperating one, with one another, being kind with one another. So he's, he's saying more than we're just evolutionary, evolutionarily equipped to do this. He's saying that it's hardwired into us. The survival of the kindness. The survival of the kindest. Another story, and this is one of the stories from the Boston Marathon bombing, and there was lots of stories there. A marathoner limped into our tent, his shorts and shirt stained with salt from the long run. He was grasping his ears, clearly suffering from the booming sounds of the explosives. However, after quickly surveying the scene in the tent, he walked out and sat down on a nearby park bench. Concerned for him, I followed the runner outside and asked why he had left so soon after entering the tent. He replied, there are other people who need help much more urgently than I do. I then went back into the tent and brought the man a blanket and something to drink. As I walked away from him, I noticed a set of bloody footprints leading from the tent to the bench. The man had suffered considerable shrapnel wounds in the lower part of his leg, and the blood had seeped through his shoe. Selfless, compassionate act. He surveyed the scene and went to the end of the line. It's beautiful. In my mind, as it wants to do, you know, I thought of these other other heroic acts that spontaneously occur, and and my mind kind of wandered to the other side of the continuum. And I remembered a a film that I saw in a history class way back in college. Um, and many of you know it. It's called Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl. It fascinated it fascinated me then. And, and I looked it up on YouTube, and I, and I started watching parts of it again. Uh, she was a young filmmaker and, in Germany. And for those that are not familiar with it, it was filmed in 1934 at the Nuremberg uh, Convention for the National, Soci National Socialist Party, and there were 700,000 National Socialists that, that attended. And for all practical purposes, at that time, in 1934, Hitler had uh, subsumed what was left of the old government. And for all practical purposes, by that time, the Nazi party was the German government. 
So this young woman, a very gifted filmmaker, was hired to make this film. It shows Hitler arriving in an airplane. He's flying through the through the clouds and he's gazing out and the clouds break open and there's this beautiful sunlight over Nuremberg and you see these crowds of people and he lands. It's like a it's like depicted like a god coming out of the sky. And then the rest of the film shows the motorcade and then speeches by he and the the other uh, lieutenants of his and shows him speaking with young young people's brigades and but what's so striking about the film that it catches the power of the people swept up in the energy of this mass movement they're kind of swept up in this manipulative charisma of a skilled strategic orator i found the adoration on the faces of these people just stunning haunting I'd pause the, on the space bar and I'd look at these people. You know, all of them are gone now, of course, it's that old. But I look at the young people and the old people and the different workers and farmers and I'm just, you know, all of them galvanized to the will of this cause. It was very scary. It's a very scary film. And so as I watched Triumph of the Will, you know, of course, I considered the end results. You know, the end result of these conditions, these causes and conditions, and there were many for the arising of this. 65 to 85 million people killed as a result of the war. And the survivors, they don't even know how to count how many people survived and suffered PTSD, which then affected future generations and future generations. And that hits home close to me. It's part of the reason I'm so interested in this, this time in history. Uh, my own father returned from World War II severely uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He was with the Fifth Army through Africa and into Italy. And they were in combat. His unit was in combat for over 600 straight days. That's still the record of continuous days of combat in, with U.S. forces. And I was born after the war, but relatives would come up to me at gatherings and they'd say, oh, you should have known your father before the war. What a guy, you know, what a fun guy. Well, that wasn't the person who came back. And there were millions and millions of people who came back like that all over the world. So the, the world's, uh, that, that world war's effect on my family was profound and on me. And I'm still working with the echoes of that. And as part of my personal journey a, a few years ago, I attended a, a Zen peacemakers retreat. And this one is held at Auschwitz-Birkenau every year for the last 20 or so years, as far as I know, where um, over a million people were put to death, somewhere between a million or a million and a half. And it's an interesting retreat because people come from all over the world. And, and during that retreat, in, in the group that was there with me, there were children of Holocaust survivors. There were children of SS officers. There were young people from Israel. There's a group of young people from Israel and Palestine who, were, who, who had come. There were Catholic priests 
nuns, a couple of rabbis, uh, a Muslim imam, and Zen priests. And so the drill on this retreat is, um, and Birkenau, there are the, the main railroad tracks that come down the center of the camp, and that's where people were offloaded, and the decisions were made on who was to be killed immediately and who was to be worked. And so we sat on those railroad tracks, and it was in November, and it's cold, and some days it was sleeting, some days it was snowing, and we were experienced what it was, what it was like in that time of year. And so we meditated, and during the parts of each day, we read the names of those who had died, and maybe the, the most poignant for me as a parent was when we would go and we'd meditate in the barracks where the women and children were housed uh, before they were uh, put to death. And the women, bless their hearts, tried to make it as normal as it could be for the children. They set up a school. They had no materials. They hardly had any food. They set up a school. They had classes. And you can still see some of the murals that the children drew on the walls. And we sang, and there were people many different languages, and so people had, some people had guitars, and we'd, we'd sing lullabies there in different languages. And the, the German people would teach, you know, how to pronounce this, and the Polish, and the Finns, and then there was the Arabic, and the Hebrew, and the very touching and beautiful, but the tears, a lot of tears. But after a couple days on this retreat, you know, I, certainly there was the continued upwelling of grief and sadness of what had happened there. But it got more complex. It got more interesting. I was beginning to feel and experience my own unfinished grief, the losses of a lifetime up to that point, my parents, close friends, the losses of my parents, both of them were, for different reasons, were severely traumatized uh, as young people, kind of lost them before I literally lost them through death. And then there was the experiencing of a kind of indeterminate suffering which seemed to be after a while like the somehow sensing into that well of the suffering of all beings past, present, and future. And then most surprising for me, and this was my first trip to this, to this camp, was that I started feeling the love because for 60 years, people had been coming to the Auschwitz-Birkenau area and compound camp. They've been making pilgrimages, millions of people. They've been praying. They've been chanting. They've been meditating. And I began to feel it. It was palpable. I really understood what hallowed ground was. It was made hallowed by the love that was poured into there. It was very kind of disconcerting at first, like, where is this coming from? And the power of love 
Strange as it seemed, there were even moments of joy that were carried along when I reflected on all the people there. And I could also look around. There were people there from all over. And in Poland, every, every school child has to make a trip to Birkenau and spend a day there. So it was, it was the deepest and most profound exploration of the Four Noble Truths, especially the First Noble Truth. Yes, there is suffering, but the others also. There's a cause of it. The ignorance, the root cause, it creates our own personal suffering and events like that. And there's an end to it, and there's a path to the end of it. It's all there. In the last, last night of the retreat there, maybe it was the second to last night, I mean, I really wanted to explore this as deeply as I could. And I, Poland's a long way from Charlottesville, Virginia. And, um, and also I grew up in New Jersey, so breaking the rules are not unfamiliar to me. <laughs> and, and so they close it at they close it at dusk. And so I kind of drifted away from our group and I hid out in the far corner of the camp. And it's a really big place. It's, it's much bigger than the land that's included here. And so I wanted to meditate by myself alone in the back far corner of this camp. And I chose crematorium number four, I think it was. And that was the place where each day they would also uh, deposit all the ashes of those. Um, they were gassed and then cremated in the same area. And each day they would process 8,000 human beings and dump the ashes in one area. So my walking meditation was over that area that still feels spongy. Uh, there's something different about that ground. And I wanted to see, well, what what might speak to me? What might, are there spirits? Is this place haunted? Uh, you know, I, who knows? It's a big mystery, this life we're in. So I sat and I walked and I sat and I walked and I sat myself in a corner that protected me from the wind in the corner of the, the rubble of the, the gas chamber. And it was a beautiful night. There were some animal sounds and the moon was out and the little snow shower later. I was not visited by any, you know, beings or entity, but I was visited by a lot of sorrow and a lot of joy and a lot of love. Very beautiful, unforgettable evening. And I intend to go back next year and maybe some of you consider going on that retreat. So as humans, for sure, we've got these innate forces of love and compassion alive in us. But if the conditions line up in a certain way, we see what happens. History shows us all manner of destruction. And as a species, are we just subject to the winds of, of history? Are we rudderless as a group? What are the means of breaking this cycle? What can help? What can assist us? 
you know, what can assist us to create a growing cohort of individuals that have cultivated and strengthened these innate capacities, you know? You know, more people that have a fully developed sense of personal integrity, whose compassion is strong enough to stay with suffering and then do something about it, and whose wisdom is broad and clear and taking into account not just themselves, the family, but everything, every being in this biosphere. And there's numerous people in this world who operate in the world like this just naturally. They operate from that divine impulse. They might not even have strong religious beliefs. They might not go to Buddhist meditation retreats. And in difficult times, history tells us there are always those individuals with clear, compassionate voices who stand up and speak out. But oftentimes those clear, compassionate voices are drowned out. And this practice trains you to cultivate peace and happiness despite the prevailing conditions trains you to act with personal integrity no matter the conditions. This practice is a powerful rudder when conditions get difficult, when things get tough. Each afternoon we offer a training of the heart. They're not some side practice. They really are central. And as researchers explore more and more into the Buddha's original teachings, they're finding out, or a number of researchers believe, that these practices of the heart were very, very central to the practice. Over time, they got marginalized somewhat by a particular gender. You could guess which one. So the loving kindness practice, the loving friendliness practice, gradually supports the opening of the heart, which bridges the internal separations you might feel inside, helps, helps heal some of those feelings of unworthiness, self-doubt, self-hatred even. And the loving kindness practice helps heal the separations we feel with others. Those who are different, different racially, those of a different ethnicity, different politically, those of a different gender, those of a different sexual orientation, those with disability. At its core, loving kindness builds bridges to cross these illusions of separation. It builds connections internally and externally. There's a line from an anonymous samurai poem that says, I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. What a beautiful aspiration that is to make our hearts and minds our friends. That is a gateway to healing, not just yourselves, 
but our communities and our world. It's one of my, I share one of my favorite poems. I'm sure you've all heard it. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of the earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. So sometimes it is necessary to reteach our loveliness. That's the loving kindness practice. Compassion practice takes a, a slightly different but important turn from loving-kindness practice. Builds our capacity to stand with our suffering and the suffering of others. And the definition I like uh, of compassion is a quivering of the heart in response to suffering, mine or another's. A quivering of the heart in response to suffering. And from the Dalai Lama, he says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Research is telling us how exercising compassionate acts does all kinds of restorative, beautiful things to us. I watched a video. I was kind of searching around uh, on a, I think I think I found a place called Karma Tube, and what it was was a. It, <laughs> there's everything out there. It's a, it was a compilation of security camera footage. Who finds this stuff and puts it together? But it was spontaneous acts of courage and compassion. And so uh, there was several, uh, and uh, of of the theme of someone falls on a subway tracks. And you see the people kind of, what do we do? What do we do? And then somebody leaps out, grabs the person, drags them over into a corner, ducks down, and whoosh, the train goes by, and then they pull the person out. There's another one that I remember there. there uh, it shows this van. It was this kind of a small van. It wasn't a giant van, but it was a small van. It's pulling across the railroad tracks, and it stalls. 
you don't see that there's a train coming in the picture, but there's a motorcycle that's pulled up behind it, waiting, you know, and there's two guys on the motorcycle, and the guy in the back jumps off, big guy, runs to the van and gives it this, you know, pushing it off the track, and the final push, he vaults himself backwards, and then, whew, the train goes right by, misses him by this much, misses the van by this much. It's like, whoa. He saw the train coming. He didn't think. He did. And the one I think that most impressed me of the ones that I watched, and there was a whole bunch, I didn't watch the whole thing, was it was obviously a person who was in the process or seriously considering taking their own life. It was on a bridge. And the camera angle showed the back of this man. He was outside the rail. He had, he had his hands on the rail. On the inside of the rail was the sidewalk and the road. And there was a woman, a small Asian woman. And she was just a passersby. And she saw and felt what was happening. So there she is. She's kind of glued into this guy a lot taller than her. She's got her hands, and all you see is her face. She's got her hands on his shoulders. And of course, he could go anytime he wants, and he could take her with him if he was so inclined. She's so, so small. And, she's, and you see her face. She's beamed in to him. And I couldn't tell. She got really close. She might have kissed him or whatever, but she was holding him with the power of her compassion. Her heart was open. And a couple of guys snuck up, grabbed the guy, and threw him back in the road. But it was (laughs) in a nice way. (laughs) Saved his life. But she demonstrated just on the fly the power of her compassion. She held that life in her gaze and in her heart. It was beautiful. And there are also practices within the the big tent of all the practices we do for for taking joy in the happiness of others. You know, if... If you're just fixated on your own joy and your own happiness, well, you have one chance to be successful. If you can learn to feel joy for the happiness and joy of the other seven billion people, you've got a lot of chances. The odds are stacked in your favor. I'll read you uh, uh, another story. Uh, this is from... Uh, uh, a fellow named Kent Nurburn. And he says, 20 years ago, I drove a cab for a living. One night I took a, one night I took a fare at 2.30 a.m. And I, and I arrived to collect. Uh, to, and, and when I arrived to collect, the building was dark except for a single light in a ground floor window. Under these circumstances, many drivers would just honk once. But I had seen too many impoverished people who depended on taxis as their only means of transportation. Unless the situation smelled of danger, I always went to the door. The passenger might be someone who needs my assistance, I reasoned to myself. So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. 
After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon, suit, nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Will you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat passengers the way I would want my mother treated. Oh, you're such a good man, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address <clears throat> and then asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she met her husband and where they lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and we would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out, out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were salacious and intent watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. Oh, there are other passengers, I responded. And almost without thinking, I bent over and gave her a hug. She held onto me tightly. Our hug ended with her remark. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy. And after a slight pause, she added, thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought, for the rest of the day. And for the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run, or had honked once, then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments. 
But great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others might consider a small one. So taking joy in the happiness of others and supporting that when we can. And so then there's the practice of equanimity, the fourth of the Brahma-viharas. It's the perfect partner for compassion. Equanimity is the stability of mind that allows you to be present with an open heart, no matter how wonderful or how difficult the conditions are. And it's said that the qualities of love and kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy all stem from equanimity. That equanimity is the glue that holds them together. Now, loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy seem a little more proactive uh, than equanimity. We're generating friendliness. We're responding to suffering. We're taking joy in the gains of others. While, really, equanimity holds it all holds all of that with the wise understanding that everything changes. Equanimity is the is knowing that trying, trying to cling to everything that we like and hold on to it or trying to get rid of, push away everything we don't like only creates more suffering. Equanimity is balance. Its characteristic is to relax the mind before it falls into one extreme or another. Joseph Campbell says this, and he's speaking to a group of educators. The first step to the knowledge and the, the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly human realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is. And that those who think they know how the universe could have, could have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without time, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life just as it is. The joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of life just as it is. And sometimes, of course, it's hard to embrace the painful, those painful, difficult times as well as we can em em embrace the the rest of life, to feel connected to the harsher events as we do to the more pleasant events. But when you can open, when you can really open to what is, you truly discover that there's no reason to hold on to or to push away from anything. And rather than trying to control what can never be controlled, you can find a sense of security and being able to be with whatever is actually happening. <laughs> 
That's allowing for the vast mystery of all of this. Cultivating a balance of mind that can receive what's happening, whatever it is. And that acceptance, that acceptance that you've all been cultivating this week can be the source for your safety and your confidence. I need to give just a little warning about the near enemy of equanimity. Because spiritual practices are prone to this. It's the broad category of indifference. And indifference is all versions of aversions. And I'll read some to you. And just close your eyes and see if you can feel the aversion in these qualities and how they would be considered the near enemy of equanimity. Escapism. You know, these are all the ways we think equanimity is present, but it isn't. Denial and delusion. Complacency. Resignation. Acquiescence to oppression. Numbness. Moral insensitivity. Intellectual aloofness. Cynicism. Fear. And privilege. And so you might think fear. Hmm. I don't get it. But if fear is undetected and we are reflexively turning away from a situation. We may think we have balance or equanimity, but if we look a little deeper, there's fear that's driving us away, interfering with our capacity to stand with suffering. And privilege, what's that about? How does it, I don't get how that is a near enemy of equanimity point being here is when you're in a place in life and it's so good and so peaceful and you're feeling this privilege, you're detached from suffering. There's a whole larger discussion around privilege. It's a great exploration for practice. The unseen, unfelt privilege that most of us have of being of the dominant race. The unseen privilege of being born into wealth or of being of the dominant gender or of being of the favored, the favored sexual orientation or the privilege of not being disabled. See, compassion is a part of equanimity. It has to be there. If it's not there, it's something other than equanimity.
you know, some of you probably know people that are just very kind of spiritual, but there's a coldness. It's like, oh, they have cancer because it's their karma. They've caused it, you know, and there's that kind of, that kind of coldness. And then others are so compassionate that they just flood with compassion and get lost in the muck of it all, their own suffering and others, and are just completely identified and lost. So this quality of equanimity is the capacity to be in touch with suffering and at the same way not swept away by it. You can look at it, equanimity is the strong back that supports the soft belly of compassion. And those interdependent qualities, they're, they're the foundation for our ability to work with our suffering and the suffering in the world. Equanimity allows you that radiant calm, peace, and trust that, that allows you to receive the world. And at the same time, it allows you to let go of the world. A couple of very short poems from that rascal Zen poet, Basho. Hear the equanimity in, in these. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. <laughs> or this one. Try this one on for size. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. <laughs> Is everybody ready for that level of equanimity? <laughs> so as you traverse through this life, there's a natural response to all the suffering we see around us. And it can be difficult to hold it all, the personal and the global. You know, we can, if we fall over one edge, we can burn out quickly, or on the other edge, we can become indifferent. The answer to that is the cultivation of equanimity. It's that exquisite balance. Can you be with the suffering? If you can be with suffering with equanimity, your life will be transformed. The balance required of a spiritual practice is delicate. It really is a razor's edge. To care, to care deeply, but not tumble into identification. And at the same time, not lose your compassionate heart. And if this can be cultivated, the rewards are simply immense. Equanimity has its foundation in letting go. Over and over. Letting go, letting be. Those of you who are parents get to practice equanimity a lot. Especially in the sense as children get, over, get older, there's got to be more letting go, letting be. And with my children... Um, both of them, especially my daughter, she was strong-willed when she came out of the birth canal. There's no question. 
And I had to learn little by little that my role was shrinking. I could give my input and set a few boundaries. Those boundaries were always disputed. And as she grew older, those boundaries had to be, she needed a bigger and bigger pasture. And if I hemmed her in too much, the situation would go nuclear. (laughs) And so now she's grown and my role is really, it's pretty simple. I offer love and support. If she asks for counsel, I give it. And I know that she too, like everyone who has walked the earth before her, she's going to suffer in her own ways. So that's that wise edge of caring and allowing, of caring yet accepting, caring and taking your hands off the controls when it's necessary. When you recognize those moments when equanimity is needed, you can just take a pause, some breaths, incline the mind towards equanimity. May I accept things just as they are. May I accept things just as they are. The arising of mindfulness in that moment can be so liberating when you find yourself stuck, pushing, grasping, trying to control. If you can just awake then and know what's happening, you've changed the relationship in that moment. In that moment, you're much more able to relax and let go. And it all starts with this really simple practice that you're learning and enhancing this week. You see, the universe is just way too big to hold on to or to control. But it's the perfect size for letting go. So let's sit for a moment. So if you really want to help this world, what you will have to learn and what you will have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life just as it is. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.